When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 8. This is Writing Excuses, world building, questions, and answers. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Howard. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. I'm Tong Wan. And you have questions. And by you, I'm speaking to the you in the audience of WXR 2018 attendees before me. <laughs> this episode was recorded live on a ship in the Caribbean, and we're pretty in love with this model. It's this a is, lot of fun. I, I really like the way we have built our world, I have to say. <laughs> As, as, uh, as so technically, we're in the Gulf of Mexico, not the Caribbean. Just you know pointing what? out the errors in your world building. Consistency we is We are key. on the water, and it's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> that piece of the world building is all I actually need to know, which is often the case with world building. Okay. Uh, but the nice thing about this is that we have a live audience, which means that we can go to them for questions. Shall we start with our first one, or did you have other things? No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's just great. Hello, my name is Christopher Atkins, and what cultural stuff do you need to know throughout the writing process? Cultural stuff? So one of the things that I like to think about um, are what the axes of power are for, uh, for the world, because those are going to affect the way my character moves through the world. Uh, the economic status, uh, social hierarchies, those are the things that I think about and I only think about the ones that are my character is kind of going to intersect with in the story. So in short fiction, I'm likely to kind of think about the uh, axes of power, but probably only a couple of them are going to come into play in the story. So those are only going to be those are going to be the ones that I will really define. I the the things that I need to know about cultural stuff up front is uh, do I need cultural stuff in order for the world I am building to feel real? Do I need cultural stuff in order for there to be conflict that drives my story? And do I need there to be cultural stuff that impacts my characters in ways that gives them character arcs? I approach it first from narrative. From there, there's a bazillion stuff I'll end up needing to know. And I would also say specificity is really important in building a culture. And oftentimes, if you're modeling a real-world culture, what you want to do is make sure that you have specific practices that are uh, embodied in your work, but also make sure you know where those come from and why they're used, right? Where I see this going off the rails a lot of times 
is they'll take a practice without understanding the role it plays in the society and therefore undermine the purpose of that practice or end up saying something insulting about it uh, by accident. So what you want to do is do your homework, pick something very specific, and then figure out how to transform it so that it fits your world without being in direct contradiction to the purpose and the point of that practice in the first place. Uh, before I start to write, I will come up, I will think about the things that are most likely to come up that I will need to describe on the fly, and I will kind of prep them in advance. So when I wrote my cyberpunk series, I had a whole list of technologies and companies that made them. Uh, when I, uh, in the fantasy that I'm currently writing, I figured out, well, in this country, these are the kinds of foods they eat and the kind of jobs they have. Just because then uh, if I don't do that, I know that everyone is going to be a lumberjack eating stew. <laughs> so having something ready to go so I can be more interesting and more varied helps me a lot. Hearty stew. Yeah. Yes, with crusty bread. By contrast, I don't do that at all. I will square bracket it when I get to it and then, uh, and then invent it on the spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am lazier than Dan is. I find that difficult to believe, but let's go to our next question. <laughs> Hi, my name is Xander Hacking. When world-building religion, I often find that portions of the fictional religions have overlap with real-world religions. How do you treat those overlaps with respect, especially when problems with the in-world religion are part of the story's conflict? That's a good question. question. Yeah. I I have a question. Um, Is Xander Hacking your real name? Because if I tried to use that name in a book, no one would believe it. It's actually Alexander Hacking, but that's way too much effort. It's still too awesome to be. <laughs> I could say it, but Mary Robinette wouldn't. Um, I, honestly, one of the things that helps me, than me. <laughs> one of the things that helps me a lot with regard to writing fictional religions and and paying respect to real world religions is being a real world religious person who has a deep and abiding respect for the varying epistemologies that exist in the world. I believe that I can learn things by faith, by scriptural study, by revelation, and I believe that I can learn things in no other way than through science. It's a weird fence to sit on, not always comfortable, but it's one I'm on. And so anytime I am writing about a religion, I am writing it from this inherent understanding that there are multiple sides to what is going on. I think the multiple sides is a really good point. I, I try to remember to represent multiple viewpoints where possible um, because we, we all, even people within the same denomination going to the same church in the same building will have different relationships with faith. Uh, so I try to make sure that that is represented in, in the page, that, that it is not a monolith. Um, and I also try to remember that, uh, that things are interwoven um, that that nothing exists by itself. So making sure that I'm thinking about the way it stretches out into into the other parts of the culture is, I think, one of the ways I can be respectful and also um, make it feel more more organic. And to build off what Mary's saying a little bit, when you have that fictionalized religion, it is probably has a real world analog. But the thing to remember is you're not telling a story about that entire religion. You're telling a story about a person who intersects and lives within that culture or that experience. So don't think about it. Where you'll get in trouble is when you're trying to tell a story about the whole class of people, as opposed to telling about somebody's specific story. That person 
has a place. They were raised a certain way. They have certain feelings about the religion in which they exist. And those are not going to be 100% representative of the monolith of the organization, right? So remember, you're talking about an individual. Invest them with as much specificity and as much physicality as you can. And then that will help you make sure that you're articulating a perspective and an experience rather than uh, saying or rather than criticizing the whole group or criticizing uh, a real world religion in that way. My name is Gail. For your world building, how much do you have figured out before you start your first draft? And how much do you discover later as you write? I vary a lot depending on what it is that I'm writing. I often treat world building when I'm doing something that's completely made up. Uh, the same way I treat historical stuff, which is that I, I think about it in layers. I kind of get a broad overview and then and then we'll dig in. It's just that the research that I'm doing is in the, the recesses of my own imagination. Uh, but I sometimes sometimes I get very, very specific and other times I write into it. I discovery write my way in and then hit something that's an odd juxtaposition and try to figure out why it's that way. For me, it depends on the story. I like to front load things, as I said before, but because I like to do that, I have noticed how often I go back, which is every single story, every single book, I'm still going back and patching holes and, you know, making things connect that didn't connect before. Uh, So it's really just kind of a a half and half mix almost, I would say, for me. I recently had a conversation with a client who was in the early stage developing a project and I asked him about it, and he took a deep breath and paused and said, well, at the beginning of time. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is going to be a long conversation. Um, and, you know, I think what Mary said is very valuable, that it varies a lot project to project, even for one writer. Sometimes you will need to start at the beginning of time and build out your whole cosmology. And sometimes you can just jump right in and figure out things on the fly. So I With think the really early nice. Schlock Mercenary books, I was making up the world building as I went on a weekly basis. With the one that I'm uh, I'm working on right now, uh, book eighteen, the the piece that I already know is that galactic civilizations come and go in cycles, and there are lacuna during which there is no galactic civilization for millions of years. What I don't know is exactly how many of those there have been, and what were the characteristics of each of those, and what was the trigger event that ended each of those. And those pieces, I am definitely discovery writing as I go. So when you ask the question, well, at the beginning of time, I'm working my way backwards to that. (laughs) Hey, guys. My name is Cooper. Um, Much like how it can be bad if you introduce key characters too late in the narrative, such as the last one-third, what would you say is the threshold where you should have introduced all major world-building elements, halfway or something else, and does it change based on genre or intended audience? I will say I think this is more flexible than most people think it is. Um, the The best piece of world building I've seen in recent media is the TV show Steven Universe, which at every major turning point in the show has completely upended my understanding of the world and the cosmology of that series. And the reason it never feels like a problem is they always tie it to character conflict. Every time they introduce a new world building element, one of the major characters is having some personal crisis or some personal conflict that ties directly to the thing that they're introducing. So when you meet more of the gems or when you meet the diamonds or whatever it is, 
it always feels like a character development, and therefore you can add more to the world as you go um, without disrupting that if you keep it really grounded in how the characters are experiencing that and how they feel about the world around them. I try to uh, make sure to introduce new character elements or new world-building elements, I mean, slightly before they matter. So that when they show up, they don't feel like, oh, Dan needed to explain this thing, so he changed the way horses work or whatever. But I'll tell you a couple chapters earlier how horses are different, and then it will matter a couple chapters later. So if I'm always, the world building is always a couple steps ahead of the story itself, then you could introduce something all the way at the end of the book, and it will still feel natural because we'll know about it before it matters. Yeah, I do that, but sometimes, often the way I'm doing that is that I will use it at the point that it matters and then go back and find And fill spots. it in, exactly. Doctor Who is kind of a delightful mix-mash of doing it in many different ways, and sometimes a way in which they do it is exactly right, and sometimes the way in which they did it is, I find it very dissatisfying. There have been episodes where there is a new reveal about world technology, world, whatever, that happens after the doctor has announced is it is important. And often I find that unsatisfying, but sometimes it's just beautiful because it wasn't the point. The point was something else. Uh, and the point of this is, uh, it, Doctor Who is good lesson material for learning a lot of these <laughs> things. And also uh, there are reasons in which to do it in lots of different ways and they can all work. Yeah, and that's a good point to bring up is that in those instances where it works really well, it's often because it, that element was introduced for a different reason. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the reader is not saying, oh, look at this very telegraphed, this is going to be important. It, it's already important, but for something else. And so you're serving two purposes at once. Let's pause for a uh, book of the week. The book of the week is this. Oh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Oh, right. Well, hello. My name is Amal Al-Muhtar, and I am giving you the book of the week. Uh, so the book of the week is Naomi Novik's Spinning Silver. It is a development of a short story that she first wrote in an anthology called The Starlit Wood. And it's a fantastic reclamation of the Rumpelstiltskin story from a Jewish perspective, because Rumpelstiltskin is a famously anti-Semitic folktale. Uh, so what she has instead is this absolutely fantastic reversal where she has a Jewish moneylender who is a woman uh, who gains a reputation for being able to transform silver into gold through the practice of her skill. And this attracts the attention of these really scary fairies uh, called the Staric Knights, and uh, they decide that they want to test her. So it's this fantastic reversal where the supernatural element is taking the role of the king in the original story, and it's in this really wonderful world that she develops with uh, inspired by a lot of uh, Eastern European folklore and stuff. The world building in it is tremendous uh, and it's got this fantastic rumination on capital and labor and transaction and that sort of thing, but it's also full of female friendships. And, uh, you know, if you read Uprooted and thought, I really liked that book, but I wish there had been more women in it being even more friends, uh, you should definitely read Spinning Silver because it's so great. Thank you, Amal. That was Spinning Silver by Naomi Novak. And now we have our next question. 
Hello, my name is Corey, and I was wondering, how do you ensure the world comes through as a character of its own? Wow, that's such a good question that we're all sitting here going, <laughs> how do you do that? Well, I'm, I'm actually sitting here wondering if I do that. Um, you know, there's a lot of works that I can think of, books and movies, where, yes, the setting is a character, to the point that New York is really a character in my story is, is, has become a, a cliche and a, a trope. I don't know if it needs to be every time, though. Sometimes the setting can just be important to the characters without being a character itself. At <laughs> risk of telegraphing uh, some of our, some of our uh, episodes on marketing and career building, um, if your setting is an important marketing point, for instance, Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. Being able to say this is a Cosmere book is going to sell the book into an audience that would have been reluctant to pick it up if it hadn't been a Cosmere book. And so having, having a name for it so that it kind of becomes its own character is useful, and, and that's, that's reverse engineering it. I've named it, therefore it must have a personality. So, but I, I think that that when you do have a book where, where you want the character, or a short story where you want the environment, the world building to be a character, I mean, yes, naming it helps, but giving it a personality is, is I think, really hitting it on the, the nose there. It is, for me, the times that I do that, it is about the way the character, my POV character, is interacting with the environment. The environment... Uh, will take on the role of somewhat of an antagonist sometimes or somewhat of a, um, of a, a co-partner, uh, a sidekick, depending on, on what relationship my character has with, with the environment. So I will look at play, ways that the, the world building can be a barrier. I will look at places where the world building can be a help. And, and more specifically, I look at my character's relationship with that and how they feel and think about it. And that's, for me, how I can make it, rather than just a place they inhabit, uh, another a, a character that's on the page, a, a personality. And, and the other thing that I'll, I'll say is that I'm much more likely, when I do this myself or, or when I, I notice it when I read other people's, to give space for the, the world without my character in it. So it's as if it gets its own, own scene time, its own stage time. One way I think about it is, does your setting have agency, right? Yeah. And doesn't mean it's necessarily conscious, but is it influencing the plot decisions and the character decisions? Uh, design spaces are incredibly important. We are all currently on a cruise ship, which is a uh, extremely deliberately designed space designed to promote certain kinds of interaction and certain kinds of movement. Um, and when you become aware of how you're being moved through the ship and why you will walk across on certain decks and not on other decks, um, you can sort of start to see how the setting can shape the plot of your story. And when um, that's why cities often become this sort of character role in uh, a story like that, especially, you know, and heist stories often have that as well. You know, the Bellagio in Ocean's Eleven becomes a character because the physical attributes of that building become very important in determining how the characters will move through it and accomplish their goals or won't accomplish their goals. So if your setting is influencing plot, if it's influencing character decisions, then it will itself start to feel like a character in, I think, a really exciting way. And, and along those lines, I think one of the things, 
is to, um, to to pay attention to the language that you're using to describe it. So when we're talking about it, it having a personality, you know, New York's a great ex- is the example that everyone returns to that it's it's gritty, it's dark. Those and and the vocabulary that people use to describe those settings is very different than the vocabulary that one would use to describe Disneyland. Yeah, and so paying attention to Not that the way I do it. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I have questions now. I have so many well, questions. We should goes, all go to Disneyland together. There goes our Disney sponsorship. <laughs> uh, I would recommend you all start listening to the podcast, 99% Invisible. I apologize oh, yeah. for plugging on the podcast. But if you want to really understand how design spaces influence character and plot decisions, then that is a great place to start. Uh, hello, my name is Andrew. Um, when world building in science fiction or fantasy... How much change to terminology is too much? For example, a new calendar system, uh, units of measurement, or currency? Yeah, this is something I struggle with. Some some of those are are easier to talk about than others. Uh, Units of measurement, for example, if I don't understand what a blurk is, then telling me that the city is five blurks away doesn't really tell me anything. Um, Whereas... I don't need to know how much money a blurk is worth. If you say the bowl of soup is worth five blurks, then I kind of get a sense of it. So there's different kinds of world building elements are much more easily grokkable than others. So the distance to the city is, is a soup. Yes. Yeah. How far away is the city? Well, about the cost of a bowl of soup. Yeah. Or, or a, or a, a hemi-deca blurb. <laughs> <laughs> but but actually, the thing is... Did you just well actually us? I, no, I, I but actually, you know, okay. which seems more appropriate. There we go. Uh, the thing is that, that when we are talking about units of measurement, and this is where I look at whether or not I need to shift it. I, I look at whether or not there is an underpinning that, that has shifted. So, um, you know, our units of measurement are... are Things like there's the, uh, if, if we have uh, an imperial inch, that tells you that there's an empire. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have an empire, then, then having something that weighs an imperial inch is, is not a useful thing. So I, I will sometimes look at, at that, at whether or not there is something in the unit of measurement that doesn't fit with the world. The, the, the months, for instance, you know, August, September, October, those, that implies that there was a Rome. Uh, so I, I'm much more likely to shift something like that than I am worrying about whether or not I need to have something weigh, you know, be five feet tall versus five blurks tall. It's- I love how something can weigh an inch and also weigh five feet tall. yeah. I love this. It's and about also soup. the city is it's tossed away. Yeah. It's about soup fight. It's about We are getting into so many, like, really, I almost wonder if we need to can of worms this, which we haven't even done in years, because even the October-September thing, there's an entire school of thought and fantasy that the book was written in its own language, but it's been translated into English, and so we just are calling it October because then our readers can understand it. There's, there's a lot of world-building elements like that that some portions of your audience are going to care about deeply and others are just going to 
gloss right over and go, okay, that's fine. It's really oh. a question about what are you trying to say about your culture? Because yeah. the choice of a foot versus a meter says something about the culture that you live in. It, it, does it come from somebody who's trying to scientifically impose a unit of measurement? Or is it, oh, my foot is roughly that large, right? That tells you a lot about the history of that culture, what they prioritize and what's important to them. Names of the months are the same thing. Those come from specific places. So when you're making those choices of choosing to invent a new system, that better be a very relevant piece of world building and a really important concept for the, how this culture operates. You want to pick things that are very close to your central metaphor that drives the book that you're writing and make sure that you're picking new invented terms that have histories and meaning for very good reasons. Be very, uh, you can only change so many things before people start going, I don't know what all these words are. So be very deliberate about which ones you invent new words for is my advice. Yeah, the, the thing that I'm just going to add on that is that if you want to avoid using, you know, August, if you decide that that doesn't fit into your world, it's not that you have to invent a new month. You just need to not refer to the month. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, summer vacation is uh, is in August. It's like, no, summer vacation is in summer. Yep. It's like that yeah. that kind of thing is often an easier thing for your reader to to grok than uh, than actually doing invention. Yep. Um, uh, our our mastering engineer Alex has very carefully edited out all audible sounds of dismay as we had to cut off the questions because we're out of time. And so my notes here say that your homework is toss thumps, toss something to Mary. That's right. <laughs> so we've had a number of different questions come up, and I'm going to leave you with the most difficult one, which is. What do you do about time in your universe? So what I want you to do is you're just going to think about calendar. You're going to think about in your world, what are the things that change? What are the markers? Is this a, is this a culture that marks things by the moon? What if there are two moons? How does that influence what their calendar system looks like? I'm not asking you to actually put this into your story, but I just want you to take time and think about how the culture in your world building deals and measures time. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was engineered by Bert Grimm and mastered by Alex Jackson. It was recorded live in front of a studio audience on the Writing Excuses retreat in 2018. Your hosts were... Howard Taylor, Mary Robinette Kowal, Dan Wells, and Dong Wan Song. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.